Your passage is from John 7, 25 through 36. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is this is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? morning, everyone. <clears throat> the events of this passage that Johanna just read, are, they're still taking place in the wake of Jesus' teaching in the temple uh, back in, towards the beginning of chapter 7. Because of the clarity, simplicity, and authority with which Jesus taught publicly, in the middle of the Feast of Booths, the Jerusalem crowds and the Jewish leaders, the Sadducees a little earlier, and the Pharisees here in this passage, were wondering aloud what to do with him. That's the heart of this passage. More of Jesus' hearers wondering, who, who is this man? Can he really be the Christ? And if that sounds familiar to you, if you've been to Grace Church for a while through John's Gospel, it should. Throughout his Gospel, John has presented a steady stream of stories of real-life people, of all walks of life, Jew and Gentile and rich and poor and educated and uneducated and religious leaders and government leaders already so far. The influential and the commoner Individuals and crowds, the sick and the healthy, who have encountered Jesus and were left knowing they needed to figure out what to do with this guy. And so here, here's the thing. That, that's the heart of this passage. I'm going to say a little bit more about that and then pray. But that's the main question that confronts all of us and all of your neighbors and everyone at every corner of the earth. Is this guy who he said he was? That, that is the first and most important question that all of us can settle on. And the second flows out of that. Who am I? The first question is, who is Jesus? Is he who he said he was? And then secondly, in light of that, who am I? Okay, so the second question isn't the point of the sermon, but I want to say a word about that. As soon as I heard the song that we just sang, I I wanted to sing that together as a church largely because of the second question. So it was written, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but it was written by Andrew Peterson's daughter. 
You don't even know who Andrew Peterson is, but he's a musician. Uh, and, and, and he wrote a song to his daughter a, a few years ago that says, and it was, Be Kind to Yourself. It was his plea to God and to her to be kind to yourself. Find your identity in Jesus. And then a number of years later, this is sort of her response to that. I am not my own. This, she wrote this. Guy Peterson wrote this. And she, she wrote it in response largely to the message her father had given her about who she was in Christ years earlier. And so here's my hope. Wise dads, dads, if you're wise fathers will know that at all times, young ladies especially have a hard time with this question. This, this song should be on repeat in your house. And, and the neat thing is, uh, Mentioned this to Ginny this morning. I, I sure when in the when the girls' choir comes up, this would be a good one. And she was already planning on that. And so, in God's providence, a way to get that on repeat in your house is to encourage your girls to be a part of the girls' choir that's coming up soon. So, that's not the sermon. Bonus content. Uh, let's continue with the sermon, which is the first question. So, second question: Who am I in light of who Christ is? You need to answer that but we'll get to that at another passage in the Bible. This passage is, is Jesus really the Christ? Who is this guy who keeps doing these things and saying these things that just, they don't fit our categories? Who is this guy? So the, so the idea here is John has already done this several times in the first seven chapters, presented Jesus in a way that you have to respond to that. And then he'll do it many more times in the coming chapters. Let me remind you, this this should be a reminder of why. John retold story after story after story like that because, as I hope you remember, his main point, the whole gospel of John exists for one main reason, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that is to convince his readers that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ in order that they would believe in him as the Christ and receive the life that he offers, the forgiveness of sins, the reconciliation with the Father, the redemption of their bodies and souls. And so John's picking these stories on purpose. If you feel like week after week we keep coming to these passages and the main main point is largely the same, namely he did this, what are we going to do about that? He said that, how are we going to respond If you're picking up on that, that's good. That's John's point. He wants to keep that in your face, in my face, in the face of all of his readers. And so the key for us to grasp then is that John wasn't recording just any stories of Jesus' life. His main point wasn't, I said this at the very beginning of John, his main point was not a historical account in chronological order of the life of Jesus. That was mainly what Luke's gospel is for. That wasn't his point. His main point, which included some of that, and to bring it full circle, is his main point is to tell, retell the stories of Jesus' life that most showed the Christness of Jesus, that most clearly showed Jesus to be the Christ. And so he's picking certain stories that he understands with God's help do that. Okay, so... We get another example of that here. Jesus taught in the temple. He taught in a way no one knew what to do with. One group we already saw in response to that was forced to deal with it. Now here we get two more groups. The Sadducees earlier and now crowd, different crowds from earlier and the Pharisees, another group of religious leaders. And so 
To that end, there are two main sections in our passage, and Matt, I think, does this, and he did a great job of putting the two sections in their proper place. The first one is on the screen, 25 to 31. In, in that, we find these Jerusalem, Jerusalemite. I never said that out loud. I wrote it down. Jerusalemites, uh, crowds from Jerusalem, people who lived in Jerusalem. These were not Pilgrims who had come there for the Feast of the Booths, these were people who lived in Jerusalem, were were from the city itself. Wondering aloud. They're Jews and they're wondering aloud whether or not Jesus was the Christ. They debated among themselves, and and I think I, I can help you to see that they, throughout the course of these just few verses that you see on the screen right now, changed their answer three times. It's interesting. Some somewhat in response to Jesus speaking into that. But then the second section is 32 to 36. And there we find another group, again, of religious leaders, this time the Pharisees, having already made up their minds about who Jesus was, trying to figure out how to shut him up. What's remarkable, again, is that in the midst of both of these, the crowds and then the leaders, they're, they're wondering what to do with this guy. In the midst of both of that, Jesus speaks into that. Well, neither group, neither the crowds nor the Pharisees, seem to appreciate what Jesus said to them. And so most of both groups were left in their state of confusion. What do we, what do, we do with this guy? Well, in all of this, the two main, even if familiar, things for us to grasp are one, that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. And because he is, that has very important implications for the second main question you should ask, who am I? It's measured against Jesus as the Christ. But then secondly, having encountered, encountered him, Jesus, the Christ, we must either re- receive or reject him as such. You're going to encounter him again this morning. And so all of us are forced to receive or reject him or continue rejecting him as the Christ. So our passage, again, records real historical events. These things happened. These things were said. These things took place, but in so doing, it provides for us a type of enacted prophecy. That is, practically, it gives you and me a living picture of what it looks like to be confronted with the person and message of Jesus and to have to decide what to do with him. We get to see in these people, people confronted with the same thing we're being confronted with now, This is what it looks like to have to decide. This is the inner, we get a glimpse of the inner workings of the minds and hearts of this group of people who had to deal with this. And so what are we going to do? Will we receive him on his terms and pay the accompanying cost and gain the accompanying reward or go on our own way? Will we trust in our own sense of things and bank our eternal lives on our own merit or will we receive him as Christ? In other words, in a very real sense, the point of this passage, which I hope the Spirit is pleased to do to all of us, is to hold up a mirror for us to see ourselves in as we consider our response to Jesus. Will it be as the crowds and the leaders did? Or will we respond in genuine faith? If that sounds serious, it is. So let's pray. God, we need your help for all good things. On our own and in our flesh, we're... We're able to walk away from you and disobey you and deny you, but it is with the help of your spirit alone that we can honor you and live in a manner pleasing to you. 
And so we pray that you would do that this morning, beginning by opening our eyes to behold the wonderful things of your word, to help us to see that Jesus is the Christ and to feel the reverberations of that to every aspect of our being and our lives. May this... May the Spirit be pleased to clean the mirror off and open our eyes and see us as you see us, either separated from you and in an enmity with you as we're left in our sin and rejecting Jesus as the Christ or pleasing to you and honoring to you in every way, having been given the righteousness of Jesus and put in the Son to, to be put in Jesus by grace through faith so that you see not us but your very son. Help us to see us as you see us, that we might live as you mean us to, in the power of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, mentioned it several times already. I'm going to mention it many more in John, because John mentions it many more. Everyone who encounters Jesus has to figure out what to do with him. As Jesus taught or performed signs, It always far exceeded the expectations of whoever was near. What is going on? What is this guy doing? How is he able to talk like this? How is he able to do these things? There was something different about him. But what exactly that was, it seems that very few people in John's gospel could say for sure. Well, in our passage for this morning, we get to look at two familiar groups. They've been in John already. They'll be in John again. The Jewish crowds, that is the people of Jerusalem, and the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees. The crowds wondered aloud if Jesus was in fact the Christ. And the leaders wondered how they could silence him, having decided already that he was not. We're going to first consider the crowds and and then the leaders. And we see as we consider the crowds, three answers they gave in just these few short verses to that question. Both the main question and their first answer is found in verses 25 and 26. As they gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, Jesus was the talk of the town. Word had spread that he'd come to the feast and that he had taught in the temple. Word also spread, it seems, that he was teaching in a way that amazed his hearers and baffled the Sadducees, the the governing body of the temple. Look at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man whom they, that is the religious leaders, seek to kill? Isn't this that guy? And here he is speaking openly. And they say nothing to him? Jesus had everyone on edge. No one knew quite what to do with him. The crowds wondered, our leaders want to kill this guy. We've heard that many times, but at the same time, they're allowing him to teach in the most public and significant place possible during one of the three most important feasts that we have where everyone is here. What's the deal with that? Why would they allow him to get up front and go on like that if they weren't afraid of him, if they didn't think there was something, in fact, different about him? We know for sure they they thought if any of us had done that, we'd have been removed immediately and probably worse. And so the crowds see this, Jesus' boldness and the leader's cowardice, and it made them wonder, verse 26, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? I mean, nothing else explains their actions in light of his actions. And so again, the question forced upon the crowds and by you and I, it forced upon us right now by Jesus' teaching and his courage and the religious leader's cowardice and response is, can this be the Christ? 
Is he the one we've been waiting for? And the first answer they gave in this context was, maybe, maybe. He could be, he might be. And the heart of this answer seems to be rooted in the fact that nothing about Jesus, his teaching, his actions, or the response of others to him made sense in light of any of the categories they had, the normal categories they had for a traveling rabbi or or a, a Jewish man who would come up and teach like this. None of those categories fit what was going on, except maybe, possibly, that he is the Christ. Maybe he is. Well, in the next few verses, however, their answer changed just a bit. It seems to have moved from maybe he is to maybe not. Look at verse 27. But but we know, maybe he is, 25 and 26, but it's like they're arguing with themselves. But we know that where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Well, that's, I need some explaining. The, the prevailing notion among the Jewish people, some of which makes some sense, it was wrong, obviously, but some of it we can at least understand where it came from. The prevailing notion among the Jewish people was that the Christ, whoever he was, when he came, would come in an entirely unmistakable way. That makes, that makes some sense, given some of the Old Testament promises and prophecies, that when this guy came, it was going to be with thunder and lightning and conquering and Nobody was going to have to ask whether or not it was the Christ. You would just know. It seems to come especially from a misreading of a couple of Old Testament texts which became canonized in public opinion. Again, it was false, obviously. They, they clearly misread these texts, but the crowds believed it at this point nonetheless. And so consequently, they believed that having to wonder whether he is or isn't is a good sign that he isn't. That's, that's the heart of that. But in addition to that, the things they thought they knew about Jesus, where he was from and what his background was and who his parents were, didn't mesh with what they thought they understood of the Old Testament prophecies of Jesus. Therefore, since they thought they knew Jesus, an impressive hometown and family and background, and because he hadn't already provided the type of decisive military victory that they expected, maybe not, maybe not, maybe, maybe not. So was he the Christ? Mm. He didn't come in the manner he was supposed to come in, and he didn't come from where he was supposed to come from. So whatever else there is about him that seems to suggest that he's the Christ, this, this seems like it shuts the door on that. So maybe not. Well, Jesus seems to have heard this murmuring and th- these discussions among the crowds. Or perhaps he just supernaturally knew their hearts, like John has said he does. Either way, he knew and he addressed the faulty thinking of the crowds. Again, look at 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from. And But I have come not of my own accord. He who sent me, sent me is true. In him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. In his own way, Jesus was telling the crowds they were wrong on just about every level. That's what this means. 28 and 29 is Jesus telling the crowds, you don't know anything you think you know, or very little of what you think you know is right. Whatever prophecies you you think you understand, you don't, because I am the Christ. Whatever reading you have of the scriptures is wrong. If 
it's not plain that I'm, I am the Christ. You, you think you know that my father is Joseph, but you're mistaken. My father is the God of heaven and earth. You, you think you know where I'm from, but you don't. You think I'm from Nazareth because I grew up there. But I was born in Bethlehem, according to Micah 5.2. More significantly still, however, I'm not from there either. I'm from the Father's right side before all time. My true home is heaven. And most significantly of all, you're all wrong about the one thing you think you know more than anything else. This crowd of Jerusalemites, they thought they knew one thing in particular. And that was God. If anything... They thought they knew God. They were the offspring of Abraham, the chosen people of God. That's who they understood themselves to be at the very core of their being. But Jesus drew an absolute, unmistakable, undeniable line in the sand. It would have been if they had ears to hear absolutely earth-shaking to them. You either accept me as the Christ or you do not know God, for God is the one who sent me. That, that was ripping out from them their very sense of who they were, their very identity. The core of their sense of personhood was that they were the children of God. And Jesus says, you don't even know him. You don't even know who that is if you don't recognize me as the Christ, for he sent me. The question was, can this be the Christ? And the second answer the crowds gave was, maybe not. And Jesus responded, you think, you think I might not be the Christ but that's really because you don't know who I am or he who sent me, my Father in heaven. Grace, those are ominous words. I, I hope you feel that. Those are ominous words. The thing they thought they knew most, they didn't know. And so here's, I, I think you should write this down. Here, here's the thing. Even entirely sincere belief, even entirely zealous belief, even to the core of my being belief in something other than God as he really is, is useless. It's useless. Learn from the crowds to check not only the sincerity of your belief, but also the object of it as well. That's a big deal. All that leads to the religious leaders then attempting to arrest Jesus. Look at verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because, it tells us, his hour had not yet come. Whether the they in verse 30 refers to some in the crowds, like a citizen's arrest, or to the religious leaders or officers of verse 32 is not certain. But either way, the main point is that it, there was an attempt to arrest Jesus, and it failed. What's more, the text tells us the reason it was unsuccessful, because we've seen this before, and we'll see it several times more in John's gospel, his hour had not yet come. The fact of the matter is the Father would not yet allow Jesus to be captured or crucified because the fullness of time was not yet here. The passage doesn't tell us exactly or doesn't tell us anything about on the earthly level what prevented them from being able to do what they set out to do only that their plan was thwarted by the perfect, uninterruptible, uninterruptible heavenly plans of God. We're right to marvel at this. You're right to marvel once again at the mighty hand of God. He truly holds kings and nations and Pharisees and crowds in the palm of his hand. And this act of divine sovereignty, the God-appointed inability 
of those in power to arrest Jesus, it led the crowds to rethink again <laughs> their answer. Whether they recognized the, the fact that these people couldn't arrest Jesus, whether they recognized that it was the hand of God or were simply baffled by the entirely inexplicable response of the authorities, the crowd changed their answer from maybe to maybe not to probably. Look at verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Here they reason that whatever else we think of Jesus, it's almost impossible to imagine someone coming along and doing more or saying greater things than him. If he's not the Christ, then we can't fathom what the Christ will be like, is he? Well, probably, I guess. The scales seem to be tipping for some within the crowd, but this just does not sound like genuine God-given spiritual eyes-opened faith that God uses as a conduit for saving grace. The text explicitly says many of the people believed in him, but we've seen that before in John. There's also an undeniable hint of doubt in their belief that Jesus is the Christ. I don't know. We can't think of anything better. Probably. When it comes to faith in Jesus as Savior, probably level belief is insufficient. I want you to get this as well, Grace. As I was praying through this this week, it's important then to settle on a straightforward understanding of genuine saving faith. If it's not this, we're seeing this unbelieving belief all over in John's gospel. What is genuine belief? And I'm going to give you a a three-part historical answer. This is a quote. When the Protestant reformers considered the question of saving faith, if we're saying probably is not enough, maybe is not enough, what is enough? What, What type What constitutes genuine saving faith? When the Protestant reformers considered this question, they found in Scripture three aspects that are essential for true faith. What constitutes true saving faith? Three things. First, and these are all Latin terms, the first of these is notosius, which is the intellectual content of what we believe. Saving faith is faith in the person and work of Christ. So we must know something about Jesus and what he has done if we are to have actual faith in him. That's what he was doing in these stories that John gives us. He's presenting himself to be known. The second component of saving faith, I'm still quoting here, is ascensius. Ascensus, I'm sorry. Or belief that the content of the Christian gospel is true. So you have to know the content is the first one. And the second one is you have to assent to it. You have to believe it as true. It is possible to know something and not believe it as true. But as the Christian faith is dependent on the historical reality of things, such as the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we must not only know that Christianity proclaims the content of Christ's historical resurrection, but we must also believe that it happened. That's the second. Here's the third. What is saving faith? Finally, it includes fiducia, which is placing our trust in the one revealed in the content that is believed to be true. We have to know the content, we have to believe it to be true, and we have to trust in it. Knowing what God has revealed and believing it to be true is a good thing. However, we also need to place our trust in Christ personally. To save us, we must place our lives in his hands, 
pledging ourselves to follow him no matter the cost. That's as good of a definition as I've come across in simple terms anyway. That's the end of the quote. Perhaps some from the crowd truly believed, truly had all three components of saving faith in Jesus. But saving faith is absolutely not maybe faith or maybe not faith or even probably faith. It is graciously given. It is a gift from God. Emphatic yes with all of my heart and mind and soul and strength faith. Having that kind of faith does not mean you'll never have questions or doubts about certain aspects of the Christian life, but it does mean that God has given you when it comes to the central question of Jesus as the Christ. Jesus as having died for your sins and risen from the dead. It does mean that God has granted you genuine trust and belief in, in that. And that leads to the second section and the second group who was trying to decide what to do with Jesus, not whether or not he was the Christ or if they were going to believe in him, but how to silence or put him down. The crowds wondered if Jesus was the Christ. The Pharisees had already concluded that he wasn't, and so their what should we do about Jesus question was different. Rather than trying to figure out his nature, believing they already understood it, they were trying to silence him from speaking his lies. In this instance, the impetus for the response seems to be controlling the crowd. It was once they heard the crowd talking about the things that Jesus said and some sort of believing and wondering if he was the Christ. And it was in in hearing those things that the Pharisees chose to respond. Grace, like all leaders, John in the exhortation talked about this a bit, but like all leaders who fear man more than God, their biggest concern was with losing the support of the crowds, not leading them well or honoring God in it. And so verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. That's, that's why they chose to act. They were silent, it says. They hadn't said anything until they heard the crowds talking. Could he be? He might be. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Well, having Jesus as a significant topic of public discussion was one level of undesirable for the religious leaders. But having Jesus being talked about as possibly being the promised Christ was entirely an entirely different level of unacceptable and undesirable. In fact, it was so undesirable that two otherwise warring groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I've said this in John already, but I want to remind you, these two groups were more at odds than today's Republicans and Democrats. These groups really did not like each other and did not like to work with each other for anything. They liked to work against each other. But they came together. When we read the chief priests, those were among the Sadducees, and the Pharisees were the other group. They came together in an attempt to shut Jesus down. Again, it's hard to overstate the significance of this. In its proper context, it really is even more shocking than us imagining the Republicans and Democrats coming together against a common enemy today. In large measure, this is just my sense of things, the Republicans decide on their enemies based on who the Democrats like. And the Democrats decide on their enemies based on who the Republicans like. And so even the idea of having a common enemy is... It's hard to imagine, but it is more shocking than that even, if you understand the historical context. It was also a foreshadowing of what Jesus knew was fast approaching. They would come together successfully in their eyes. 
but ultimately because the hour had come and and the Father gave Jesus over to them to be crucified. Well, knowing that his time was just months away, remember, this is the Feast of Booths, just six months from now is the, the, uh, the Feast of Passover where Jesus would be crucified. Knowing that his time was just months away, verse 33, Jesus said then, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to him who sent me. Well, no one seemed to understand what Jesus meant by this, which we see in 35 and 36. They must have thought, okay, good, <laughs> get out of here then, because we're tired of dealing with you. That, that's, that's great. We would love to have you not stirring up trouble. Far from a good thing, however, it would mark the end of the most significant blessing the world has known. You, you had, had known until that point. Verse 34, you will seek me, but you will not find me. At some point you'll look for me, but you won't find me. Where I am, you cannot come. We need to see that there's both a literal sense in which what Jesus said is true, but also a spiritual sense. Jesus was going to the cross for the sins of the world and then to the right hand of God in his glorified resurrected body. In the literal sense, no one, of course, not even his closest disciples could join him in either of those places. Only Jesus could serve as a sufficient sacrifice for sin. Likewise, the right hand of God is reserved for the Son of God alone. What's more, once he ascended, no one on earth would be able to find him. The tomb would be empty and it would remain a mystery for many. Spiritually, though, grace, horrifically, many of those who were persecuting Jesus would never be able to find or join Jesus in the Father's presence and pleasure. That is, those who persevered in their unbelief would remain condemned by God in their sin. They would only know God's everlasting torment. Spiritually, they could not come with Jesus to heaven in their unbelief. And so it is for us, grace. God is patient. He is a patient God. But his patience is meant to lead us to repentance. That's the only reason, the patience of God and the grace of God, that we don't go straight to hell in our sin. But God's patience will run out for all of us at some point at a time that we don't know. We will die, and our chance to find Jesus and go with him to where he is will run out. Today is the day of salvation. Turn to Jesus today and call those around you to do the same. He will receive you. He will forgive you. He will set his love upon you if you will surrender yourself in faith. Still confused, however. Rather than turning to Jesus in that kind of faith, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he, tend, does, does he intend to go to the dispersion or the diaspora among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and not find me? Where I am, you cannot come. I just didn't know what to do with this guy. Thinking only literally and poorly at that, They just couldn't imagine anything other than Jesus trying to slip away to escape their grasp. The devastating effects, the blinding effects of sin, grace. The Son of God is in front of them, declaring himself to be the Son of God in power with signs and teaching like no one had ever heard, correcting their errors, addressing their shortcomings, and they did not have eyes to see. The light of the world stood in front of them but their blindness kept them from seeing him. That's what sin does. What we have in this passage is a man marked for death, yet unafraid. 
encountering a group of men who have the power to kill but are terrified. The crowds were amazed by this incongruity. What does that even mean? The the fearlessness of Jesus, the condemned, and the cowardice of the Pharisees, the the condemners. What do we do with this? Grace Jesus is the Christ, and therefore it is right for us to trust in him. Many among the crowds and religious leaders refused to do so and therefore remained condemned and unable to follow Jesus to the Father's blessing. For all who did and yet do today, they would know persecution. Those who did trust in Jesus then and those who trust in Jesus today would know persecution and difficulty even as Jesus did. A life lived by faith in Jesus Christ therefore means a life of courage, fearing not those who can destroy the body, but only he who can destroy the body and soul in hell. And that kind of courage, John tells us in his letter that he wrote later, First John, comes only from the perfect love of God for us and in us. And so for those who are not yet trusting in Jesus, seek that perfect love of God in Jesus. And for those who are trusting in Jesus, long for the courage to live entirely in light of that. Seek the love of God in Jesus. It is the love of God that sets us free from fear and fixes our eyes on Jesus, the greatest treasure. It is in that love alone that we will be able to say with Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain. It is in that love, the love of God and Christ alone, that we will be able to break from the unbelief and unbelieving belief of those in this passage and receive Jesus as the Christ, following him wherever he leads and whatever it costs, straight to the Father's everlasting joy.